It's grad season. I don't know if you've already attended one, but there's graduations going on all the time right now. We've seen college grads and university grads. We have upcoming high school graduations. And then, of course, the cute little preschoolers as they graduate, as they move on into kindergarten. But as different as all these different grads can be, they all have some similarities. And the one similarity that might come to all of our minds besides the actual graduates is the speeches. Traditionally, at any graduation, there is a bunch of speeches, and usually the, the highlighted speech is what they call the commencement speech or the commencement address, which is when someone gets up, maybe someone of influence or importance, whether at that educational institution or in culture, gets up to inspire the grads. And sometimes they'll try to be funny, other times they'll try to give the best of advice that they can ever give, but the problem is rarely are these commencement speeches memorable. But for me, there is one memorable commencement speech. It was a speech given by the American novelist David Foster Wallace in 2005. In 2005, he gave up and gave a speech which has stuck with me since I first heard it. And that's saying a lot. Because in 2005, I had never attended the school that he spoke at. I've never been there since. I've never been to the city where it is even then. In 2005, David Foster Wallace stu stood up at Kenyon College in Ohio and gave a speech he entitled, This is Water. And in that speech, he began to give what he felt were some of the most important things that this group of young adults would ever need to hear in life. Now he started out like many speeches would start out with a little bit of a, a parable sort of talk. He used this parable of two fish and there's a wise old fish and a young fish and as the wise old fish swims by one day he says, how's the water? And the young fish says, what, what is water? And Foster Wallace was giving this parable to point out the fact that sometimes the most obvious and important things in life are the things we're least likely to see or to talk about. And so he used that as a launching point for these young adults to consider what would be the central focus of their adult life. And from there, he addressed a number of different things. But the thing that landed most powerfully in my mind was his address of the topic of worship. Now, this is an interesting thing because Foster Wallace is not a Christian man. At the time, he had no religious affiliation, but he believed, based on everything that he had seen, everything he had come to understand and know as a, a great novelist and as someone who engaged in literature, was the fact that everybody worships. And so he wanted this class to understand this message. And this is what he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as no worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan mother goddess, or the four noble truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. He goes on to say that we all know this stuff already. And the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Now, while I certainly don't agree with everything that David Foster Wallace has ever said or written, nor do I I agree with everything he addressed in this commencement speech, I do believe that he was on to a powerful truth as he gave this portion of his address. We all worship someone or something. And if we choose to worship the wrong thing, it will eat us alive But if we choose to worship the right thing, it will bring us life. What's interesting is this teaching that Foster Wallace gave mirrors something that Jesus taught long ago. Jesus spoke freely about the fact that all people worship someone or something. And that what we devote our time and our attention towards, the items that become the focus of our daily consciousness are the things that are our treasures, they are the places that we reside. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most extensive singular recorded teaching, Jesus spoke about this matter of where we store our treasures, of where we get the light in our life, of the places in which we are enslaved. And he taught in such a way so that people would understand ultimately that people should pay attention to him. That people should be loyal to him and worship him above everything else. Today we're going to be looking at that teaching. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 24. And there we will read a section that is commonly known as treasures in heaven. This is what Jesus had to say. Chapter 6 verse 19. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where the moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now there's a lot for us to take out of this passage, but before we get there, I want us to just focus for a second on the context in which we find these verses. And that context is of particular importance because it it frames for us an understanding of what Jesus is saying here with this imagery. 
What we know so far is at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus sat down and he began to speak to a group of people following him and some interested bystanders. And as he taught, he didn't just throw them kind of interesting little quips and little softball teachings of life, but instead he challenged people in a countercultural way. He told them to love their enemies to push back against societal norms such as hatred or objectifying women or participating in divorce. He told them that if they should ever say something, if they were to make a commitment, the people who followed him must always follow through. He taught people that he had come to fulfill God's plan and that he was worthy of worship and that people should worship him and not be concerned about the attention of others. Jesus encouraged people to practice in spiritual disciplines, to engage in these practices as ways of connecting with God, to be more like him, and to be rewarded by him. And this all gives us this context as we come into verses 19 to 24, because Jesus is now telling us to pay attention to how we live and to what our heart treasures. As Jesus taught about what his kingdom was to be like, he didn't want people to just skate through life between a list of do's and don'ts, but instead he calls his people to an unwavering loyalty to his kingdom, even when so many other things would demand our attention. And so here in verses 19 to 24, Jesus talks all about this using three metaphors. He uses a metaphor of treasure, He uses the imagery of light, and then he also speaks of slavery. And with these three word pictures, we're provided a lot of opportunity to consider our lifestyle of worship. So let's start with verses 19 to 21, where Jesus starts with this image of treasure. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermins destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also so here we have jesus painting a picture of what wealth looked like in his day in jesus day having expensive clothing and having fine fabrics was a status symbol But he points out that even though we might be able to one day successfully have these beautiful garments, they could be destroyed by a simple little creature like a moth. He brought up these precious metals that people would try to accumulate, though in the awful Middle Eastern climate would be destroyed. He gave this picture for this agricultural society of these storehouses filled with grain. And he said, you know what? All it takes is a few vermin. It just takes a a few rats to eat away at all that grain and to make everything not good. Anything else, the wealth that we collect in life can simply be stolen by thieves. Now Jesus, as he talks about these things, is trying to get people to understand that the the things that we view as important here by our earthly standards sometimes are things that aren't cut out to provide for us in the long term. 
And so he says these things will fail you at different points in life. So instead of living your life in a way focused on the things that will let you down, that will be destroyed or taken from you, the things that can be uh, ruined for you by the littlest of things, don't pay attention and put your weight in life on those things. Instead, focus on accumulating something that lasts for an eternity. Now, many of us might say, well, okay, but how, how, how do we go about doing that? Like, what, what, what does it mean for us to accumulate treasures in heaven? Well, if we recall what Jesus has been saying over the last number of verses, Jesus has painted this picture that God rewards people for certain behavior. That there is a tangible benefit, that there is a, a leading into a flourishing life and uh, an accumulation of reward for eternity if we participate in following him, in advancing his kingdom, in trying to be more and more like him. And so here, out of that teaching, Jesus says, and what's beautiful about that reward is that it will never fade. It will never be tarnished. It won't be able to be taken from you. Sometimes people can look at this passage and think that it's all about just material goods and that Jesus is just coming down on wealth, but that's not what he's trying to do. Instead of coming down on wealth, what he's coming down on is our focus and our obsession about those things. What Jesus is trying to do is divide us from having split loyalties to following him alone. When Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's trying to get us to consider what are the things that we worship. What is treasure? Treasure can be all sorts of things, but simply it's the things that we focus on, the things that we care about, the things that we plan for and daydream about. For you, you might be able to define your treasure by asking yourself a few different questions. What do I focus my thinking on? What do I dedicate my time towards? What do I plan about? What do I find myself daydreaming about? For many of us, it might be a bigger home, a trip abroad one day when COVID ends, or maybe it's the next career move. Notice none of these things are bad. They're all actually good things, but we also have to consider that none of these things are permanent things. A bigger home will eventually start to fall apart and need its updates. A trip abroad will one day fade from our memory and just be left in pictures. A career move will one day end with retirement or death. What Jesus says is that you need to pay attention to what you're focusing on to make sure that you're investing in the most important things. And this is where we get this idea that what we, where he says what we focus ourselves on, where, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. The heart was a very important concept to the Jewish people. They considered it as, as the center of their lives. And so Jesus is saying the center of your life is what you fixate on, what you consider your treasure. And so how does what we fixate on really affect our lives? Well, let me use a, a, a borrowed analogy of a snow-covered field. Imagine one day you were to get up and there's a beautiful snow-covered field outside your door. 
It's inches deep and there's not a mark on it. No one's walked through it. No dogs peed in it. Nothing has disturbed this beautiful white powdery snow. What are you going to do as you see that? Well, hopefully your first response isn't to shovel it, though I'm sure that's for some of us. I hope your idea is that you want to go and play in it and make markings in it. Maybe you want to make a snow angel. Maybe you want to try, uh, you know, step and make a uh, message for someone. Maybe you just want to create an interesting pattern. Imagine, if you will, for a moment that you wanted to just make a beautiful pattern of lines across the snow. How would you go about doing it? Well, let me tell you how you wouldn't go about doing it, or at least you shouldn't go about doing it. The thing you shouldn't do is look at your feet while you're trying to make a line. Have you ever walked around while looking at your feet alone? The problem is that as you walk, you start to kind of meander side to side a little bit rather than going in a straight line. We're taught that if we want to head in a specific direction, the best thing we do is look for a fixed point, maybe a a tree or a rock or a building, a fence post on the other side of the field. And as you focus on it, you walk in a remarkably straight line. Jesus is saying our lives are sort of an opportunity to make up a pattern which represents something. And if we go about setting our eyesight on treasure or the things that are within us or that bring us the most immediate pleasure, we'll end up walking through life looking down at our feet. And everything will be squiggly and messy and go in a whole bunch of different ways. But if instead we fix it, fixate and focus on Jesus, our path will be straight and we'll be able to leave a beautiful pattern from our lives. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Jesus moves from this image of treasure then to an image of light. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. So here, another picture. Uh, Our eyes are the lamp of our body. Jesus says something that many people have thought about before, said since, that our eyes are the window into our soul. In Jesus' day, there was another close connection that was understood by the people, and that was that our eyes were closely connected to our heart, and in fact, they were a conduit that led things into our heart. And so there was this idea that if our eyes were good, and if they're focused on good things, they bring good things in through them into our heart. But if our eyes focus on something that is dark or evil or wrong, what it does is it brings in that evil into us, which corrupts our heart and soul. Jesus was speaking the language of the people, trying to help them understand that if they want to consider what's in their heart, if they wanted to consider the treasures of their light, they had to make sure their eyes were fixed on good things and they would receive that light and it would fill them with light as well jesus 
was trying to paint a picture. I believe he's actually here hearkening back to something he said earlier in chapter 5 that not only do we become filled with light, but as we fill with light, we have an opportunity to give it off. A lamp that is full of light brings light to those around it. When I think of this image, I can't help but think about camping. I mean, have you ever had that situation where you've gone camping with the kids and you go to the bathroom and, and the kid goes to use the washroom first and you send them back to the tent only to realize they've taken the flashlight with them? I've been there. I did that last summer. And I, I remembered as I, as I came out of the washroom being like, how am I going to find my way? I remember as I looked across towards our campsite, there was our lantern hanging below the pop-up tent. That lantern, while full of light, gave off enough of a beacon for me to be guided back to my family. And I got to come back safely, you know, avoiding maybe a few branches that, that got in the way, but ultimately it got me to the place where I wanted to be. This metaphor as well was used earlier, as I said, by Jesus in, in chapter 5 where he challenged Christians. He challenged his followers to be light of the world. He, he called us and used this picture of a house that would sit on a hill and it would shine the light from the windows so that people could travel safely to their destination. If we fixate our eyes on good things, if we focus our attention on the right things, our hearts become full of treasure and light, and then we're able to give that light off towards others. This is a really positive image that Jesus gives us. And so we have this picture of, of our treasure and our heart being tied together, our eyes being what fixates on that treasure. But now Jesus moves to a slightly different uh, illustration in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so there's this idea of, of, our, of our two eyes being uh, connected to our heart. And we can't divide our eyes on, on two different things. We can't absorb the, the light and the darkness because that will create turmoil in our lives. And, and so he pushes that further and brings this illustration of this slavery in. He brings in this, this picture that, and then the people in Jesus' day often operated it with slavery all around them. And you'd commit your life to one person to, to pay off a debt or to help your family get ahead. And he says you can't serve both two masters because the problem is they're going to have two different sets of demands on you. And they're going to call the whole of your life to two different things and that's going to tear you apart and what's going to happen is at the end of the day you're going to love one and despise the other or give in to one and ignore the other and so Jesus says we cannot be a people who are divided if you wanted to think about this in in our modern context, think about a time perhaps you've worked two different jobs. If you've had that opportunity, maybe you've had that experience where it's your day off and you, you get that one day a week where you don't have to go to either job, but all of a sudden something happens at, at both places of employment. 
Maybe someone gets sick at the one and there's a, a major project due at the other and so both of your bosses fire you a text. They send you an email, give you a call and they say, hey, we need you to come in today. What do you do in that situation? You can't just pretend it didn't happen. You're going to have to account for your lack of response and so what you do is you pick one or the other. Which boss am I going to serve? Now, there's a number of different ways that you can consider that. You could say, well, which boss pays me better? Which boss do I like more? Which job am I less sick of? Which boss is going to give me more grief because I'd rather go work for that person because I don't want Monday to come and have to deal with the headache of listening to them complain about me not coming in? Whatever the reason, we are going to choose one boss or the other. Jesus says this is what our life of worship is like. And he says there's many things that, you can, that can distract us. And in particular here, he focuses on money because that's one of the main things that can draw us. But ultimately, what he's trying to get us to understand is that is there's going to be these two competing demands, whatever they are in our life, and we need to choose one to follow. Which one will we worship? Which one will we be loyal to? So here we see all these three separate images actually tie so closely together. And all of them tell us this. You need to choose Jesus over everything. Focus on Jesus over anything. As we choose Jesus, we have the opportunity to experience more of who God is. We get to experience the reward of knowing him and becoming more like him, of, of connecting with him in, in a way that we've never experienced. And that's not just a value or something that's measurable for, for a moment or, or for a season, but that is something that carries us through for an eternity Jesus doesn't invite us to, he doesn't demand loyalty from us because he wants us to be miserable. He doesn't want to treat us like his slaves, but we do have to come into this servant posture of him because look at who he is. Look what he's done for us. Jesus has died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. And so when he calls us to himself, he's saying, I've already done something wonderful for you. And now what I want you to do is commit wholly to me so that I can lead your life to flourishing, not to the, the place where people can, can take what you have and small things can destroy it, but to a place where you will have the truest of treasures for eternity. Jesus always wants us to experience what is better, and he wants us to understand his love, his peace, his grace, his kindness, and he says in order to receive all that he has to offer, we need to focus on him. For who we choose to serve, for where our eyes focus, for what we consider our treasure, is where our heart will be. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, who or what will I worship? And will I be loyal to that? Now this is a challenging thing beyond just a philosophical question because there's also practical implications. And so I want to give you just a couple quick steps of, of, of uh, sort of three steps that you could do to start to focus your attention on Jesus if that is what you choose. The first step is simple. 
I just want you to create a list of the things that consume your focus and attention. Write down a list of the things that take up the most of your time, the the most amounts of your energy. Consider writing down the goals that you have and what you're working towards. And be honest with yourself. Don't don't, don't just leave it at a superficial level. If, if your focus is getting more money, write it down. If your focus is seeing your kids achieve the things that you never thought you could achieve, write it down. If you have something else, write it down. Don't make this hyper-spiritual to start and be like, oh, well, I, I believe in God above all these other things, so I'm going to pretend these other things don't compete. No, actually, be honest with yourself. How do you use your time? How do you focus your attention and write those things down because if we're truly going to serve one master we have to acknowledge the other that has us enslaved and then what i want you to do after you have that list is i want you to simply narrow the list down to the number one thing you focus on instead of jesus identify that one thing that continually takes away all your time, attention, your focus, that thing that you think or you live like is actually a better reward than Jesus, and take that thing and surrender it to God. Bring it to God and say, God, I need you to take this from me. Holy Spirit, I need you to carve this desire out of me so I have more and more room for you. Allow God to help this thing diminish in your view so that you cannot focus on that which brings darkness to life, but that which brings light into your life. And finally, as you start to consider that and wrestle through that with God, I would encourage you to replace the time that you spend on that thing or focused on that person and instead spend it focusing on God. There is this desire that if we have this competition between God and money, money is not a bad thing, but maybe we take it and instead of worshiping it, we use it to serve God and what he's accomplishing in our world. Maybe our family is where all our desire is. And that's a tough one because our family is a good thing. But, but Jesus says uh, in Luke, for instance, he says we need to divide ourselves from our family because that is our commitment to God. It's not saying cut off your family. It's not saying hate your, your family in, in, in this uh, belittling way. But instead what we do is we, lo- we need to teach our family that our first priority is God. And so the first thing we do when we get up in the morning is we worship God instead of Uh, focusing on our family. Maybe there's time where instead of the first thing being the conversation around the dinner table about school, our first thing is where we've seen God at work. Whatever we do, we need to start restructuring our time, our focus, our attention around him. You know, a lot of us talk a, a big game when we're at church, but the reality is we don't live our life the way that we ought to. And for some of us, I think maybe we're even less hypocritical than that. And we just don't talk a big game because we simply know we don't want to do what Jesus calls us to. But in all of these things, I think our hearts should be broken. I think we grieve the heart of God for two reasons. The first is that Jesus did die for us. And as cliche sounding as that is to many people, it's the truth. 
I can't imagine how incredibly frustrating it is for God to know the sacrifice that he has done for us, the thing that he has committed, that Jesus laid down his life for us, to just be left with these people who say, yes, I'm in, but I'm actually going to pay attention to all these other things. I think for a lot of us, myself included, there needs to be regular times where we turn back to God and we repent and we confess that we focused on other things and we ask God to reorient our minds. The second reason why this is heartbreaking is I think that people are disinterested in the good news of Jesus because they see our lives as disinterested with the person of Jesus. A lot of people are heartbroken, especially about the fact that uh, Christianity is losing ground around uh, different parts of the world, particularly here in North America as we become this secular post more and more post-Christian of a culture. And while there's a lot of speculation about why that might be, I think the simplest of factors is the fact that so many people focus on things besides Jesus. We say, hey, Jesus is great, but actually we live our lives like these things over here are greater. We say, pay attention to Jesus, but actually pay attention to these causes that I care more about. We've seen it in America over the last number of years where people have politicized faith, where we've seen people extend the focus of of politics and somehow they try to tie in Jesus. and, And they say that is what Christianity is about, but really they're not about Jesus and God's kingdom and Christianity. They're about politics and and practices and policies and they confuse the fact that one of those should serve the other the 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 political side should come under the jesus side not jesus under their political banner and in canada we maybe don't politicize it quite as much but we've gone to this place where we we won't even be offensive to the culture that we are living in we don't want to stand out as different from our community but look at the call of jesus in in the sermon on the mountain elsewhere he says i call you to be countercultural because i call you to a better way of life but we say no we choose this other focus over the focus on you we choose to be politically correct we choose to be inoffensive we choose to be comfortable rather than choose to commit to follow you most of the people in uh, churches on a Sunday would rather spend their time focused on money career sex family all, uh, all sorts of things but rarely do they give their attention to God or the impact that he has on things the reality is that many professing Christians don't actually treasure what we need to treasure. We don't focus on what brings good light into our life. And so what we do is instead of walking through this world giving off light, we just give off a faint echo of what it could be. And I think that if we really want to see change in our world, if we really want to make an impact in Abbotsford, if we want to see more of heaven come down to earth, if we want to be agents of the change that Jesus calls us in, we have to begin to get this right. We have to begin to focus on God as our primary number one, and we need to pursue all the things of his kingdom. We need to surrender some of those other dreams in pursuit of what dreams are really made of. And so can we do that, church? 
Can we ask God to give us a heart for the things that he desires? Let's remember and start to work on on focusing on the rewards of God's life and not this life. Let's remember what both Jesus and David Foster Wallace said, that we all worship something and let us focus on the best thing, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And God, I thank you for the challenge that's in these verses. God, I thank you for uh, the fact that you don't just let us sit back. And, and God, sometimes I, I do wish that it would be a little bit easier because, God, it would be nice for the things that, that I treasure to be the number one thing in life. But, God, I need to remember. And so thank you for teaching me that you are so much better. Thank you for reminding us with your word that the rewards you give are greater. And Lord God, I just pray that for myself and for our church family, Lord God, that our number one focus would be on you, that it would be on expanding your kingdom, that it would be on seeing your kingdom come, your will be done here in Abbotsford as it is in heaven. And so Lord God, give us the strength to find those things that we focus on and carve them out from the number one spot to allow you to move in. God, I pray that we would be a people who would live our lives so different in our focus, so so different in the way that we interact with certain things, that people would be drawn by the light of you, Lord, that more and more people in our community and in the communities around us would come to know you. Would we see your kingdom expand because of a different set of principles that we live by? Would we see more and more treasure that's worthy of celebration in heaven come about than the treasure that's worthy of celebration here on earth and God would you give our church the ability to raise up your name to glorify you to honor you God will we praise you above all things and God we pray that we would enjoy doing it and so we pray for this by the power of your spirit in the mighty name of Jesus amen Now, as we continue on in worship, let's focus our time and attention on Jesus through this next song.